Hey everyone, just a quick note before today's episode. Ralph and I were fortunate enough to have Chase Cook join us. Chase is a reporter for the Capital Gazette. And if you're trying to figure out why that publication uh, maybe sounds familiar, it's likely because of a recent major event that happened this year when a gunman entered the Capitol's offices and open-fired, killing five employees of the Capitol. Uh, We don't get into any graphic details of the event itself, but I decided it might be worth mentioning, telling you up front that we do venture into discussing this event in great detail. Now, Chase, he was not in the building, uh, and I'll let him explain why his fate was spared, Um, but he was immediately on the ground reporting on the event and continues to report on this event as well. So he is privy to a lot of details and we do get into those. Um, I wanted to mention after listening to this, if you feel like you have a desire to support the families of those lost in this tragic event, there are two specific ways that you can do so. There is the Capital Gazette Families Fund, as well as a Capital Gazette Memorial Scholarship Fund as well, which has been uh, created to provide an award for students pursuing a degree in journalism at the University of Maryland College Park. I'm going to link to both of those in the episode show notes. I highly suggest that you please consider giving to one or both as I have. Uh, Chase didn't ask me to plug these, but I wanted to do so anyways. And so there you have it. With that, let's get right into it. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the... Last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how are you today? I'm good, Adam. How are you? I am well. We uh we we keep running into a, a stroke of luck here. We keep getting fantastic people to join us on the podcast. Yes, I was I was going to say the one thing that I took away I just wanted to say from last week's that I thought was a brilliant sentiment uh, was when uh, our guest uh, Macarena uh, said everybody has their Mexicans. That's I just it, thought that yeah. was like a brilliant insight because I've been thinking about that that you know that's sort of like this portable idea of the relationship between groups of people and I just thought that was a, a, a brilliant thing that stuck with me. Well, we so. are we're lucky to have back to back journalists and reporters here today to give uh, us a sense of what's happening out in that world. We have Chase Cook here today, who is a reporter and journalist for the Capital Gazette. Chase, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here, guys. And good to have you, an OU alum as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Walk us through maybe what 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 has happened, what has transpired uh, for your career since you've been at the University of Oklahoma. Have you jumped around? Have you Did you land immediately at the Capital Gazette? So I, I bounced around a little bit. I graduated OU fall of 2013. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and since that point, I, I interned for Oklahoma Watch, which is a, a local kind of investigative outlet that that works uh, that worked out of Gaylord at the time. And uh, then I went to News 21, which is a popular program that the University of Oklahoma contributes, where they sent a bunch of their 
they claim that they're the best journalists in those college, but they sent me, so I'm suspect about that. <laughs> but uh, we, we went to Phoenix. We worked with Lynn Downey, former editor at the Washington Post. Uh, Jackie Petchel, who's, I think, a former uh, editor for the Miami Herald. She's fantastic. And we wrote about veterans and, and the issues that they were facing. And they kind of do a project. So this most recent one that they did was on, on hate in America, which was fantastic. And there's some students from OU that went as well. And then from there, I followed a girl to East Coast. She got into pharmacy school. And the joke that I always like to make is that if, she, if I was to make it work out, I could be a journalist forever while she's the pharmacist. She makes all the good money. <laughs> uh, so now I, uh, I, I worked for the Prince George's County Gazette, which was a local community paper as a part of the Washington Post. And the I was poached by the Capitol, uh, their Bowie Blade newspaper, which is a smaller version that just covers Bowie, Maryland. And then eventually I was moved to the Capitol uh, full staff, you know, the full Capitol staff as the uh, state politics reporter and eventually the city and then county reporter. So I've covered pretty much every facet of government that the Capitol would cover. Hey, one, one, just one little backward-looking question, because you decided to get into journalism at a time when getting into journalism was seen as really not necessarily the best decision to make in the world. So what is it that sold you on that? What is it that moved you to do that? Well, I am a person who has a history of bad decisions. And, uh, <laughs> you know... The timing of it might have been pretty rough. It was the recession era, you know, maybe I think the recovery phase after the housing crisis. But when I think about it, the housing crisis kind of had an impact on me because I was so fascinated by it. You know, I wondered to myself, like, how did we let this happen? What happened? And I read Michael Lewis's book. Then that movie came out, which is a fantastic yeah, version of it. Big Short. Yeah, The Big Short. And The Big Short's a great book. You know, it's um, it's a – and I just was like, wow, I can't believe this happened. And, and, and the I was in college, you know, and I was learning about journalism and I was interested, but it really kind of catalyzed the effect that it had on me. And, uh, you know, I just really loved it. And I was studying for pre-med when I was in community college and I got to organic chemistry and they're like, okay, you need to draw this line a certain way to show that it's three-dimensional. And I was like, you know what? I'm good. I think, uh, <laughs> the X and Y axis are enough for me. I think, no we, I think we hit the peak here of the axis for me. So I would like to... Changed my major, and I'd always enjoyed writing. I was a dissenter as a kid. You know, my parents would say, because I said so, and I'd be like, that's totally not good enough. Uh, <laughs> and I eventually just kind of fell into it because I liked politics, and I was interested in things that I think some people found boring, although I'd argue the housing crisis is fascinating. And from there, I just, you know, I did, I've covered politics pretty much the entire time. I have a, I have a suspicion that, uh, you know, when Michael Lewis has hit these things, that he's actually causing them, because I think he writes these <laughs> before the crises actually happens. Mm. And so he's actually instigating them. There, there's, so. some sus, there's some suspect timing on yeah. his part. <laughs> so we better watch what he's working on now, because <laughs> that's what we should be avoiding oh, yeah. or investing okay. in one yeah. way or the other. Ralph and I have talked about this before, but, um, and I'm a little bit older than you, Chase, I assume. Uh, maybe not, but um, just the fascination of watching movies that are set at a time in which I've existed just still bl kind of blows my mind. <laughs> like, I've actually lived through this, and now it's a book or a movie. And then it feels they're kind of making like a period piece. You know, it right. feels <laughs> right. like this is the 2010s. You're like, whoa, wait a second. We, this just happened. You know, we, we, right. we don't have to uh, – not supposed to look like we're, – we already have lived this, right? Why does it feel so old? It's kind of it's kind of funnier too when they when they do something that is clearly so like um, you know when they when they do a movie about journalism that's not set in the present but is actually going back into the past and all of a sudden Tom Hanks has to have a different hairstyle <laughs> than where he's ever appeared before <laughs> to make it work. But it's just kind of funny how it kind of like yeah. th this combination of desire and nostalgia. Like you wish it had really worked that cleanly, you know? Sure. Yeah. So. 
Well, um, it's hard to talk about that. What's happened? I mean, I, I can't imagine you'd ever imagine that. One, you're you're in the situation that what happened on June twenty eighth, two thousand eighteen, at the Capitol Gazette. Um, from what I understand, uh, just to just to set everyone up on on what happened there, uh, there was a gunman named Jared Ramos who shot and killed five employees with a shotgun in the newsroom. And my understanding is you were you were not actually in the newsroom at the time that this happened, correct? I was not. Uh, on the 27th, I sat down fr- across from Rob Heisen, who has now passed away. And the uh, the other four killed were uh, Wendy Winters, Gerald Fishman, John McNamara, and Rebecca Smith. And uh, Rob was running the newsroom at the time because Rick Hutzel, the editor of the paper and, and the person uh, who was my direct editor, was on vacation. He was uh, at the beach. So on the 27th, I had worked the primary on Tuesday. I covered it. I worked about 16 hours because I also got in early and covered cops and uh, in the morning because we didn't have anybody available. And Rob gave me an extra day off because I worked so long on Tuesday. And I originally was only supposed to be off on Friday, but you know, through some twisted serendipity, I was not there. And so I got the phone call at 2.30 about what was happening. Didn't believe it. I was at home just playing a video game, trying to decompress after a long week and uh, confirmed it through Phil Davis, who tweeted, you know, famously right after it happened and then threw my work clothes and took off and drove into the office. What what is you walk me through first getting to the scene sort of, you know, you, you mentioned that you've already put on your journalist cap. You know, who are you looking for? What's it? Are you trying? You know, and, and how do you um pull apart both of the roles that you have walking into this as both an employee and now sort of a journalist covering the scene? So it really was kind of a challenge, but it was a challenge that you don't really think about it while it's happening. So when I got there, there were three, four, maybe five dozen police vehicles clogging the street. Bestgate Road, the road that we're on, was closed. The media was staged across the street. And I was kind of balancing in my head, looking at the scene and collecting the information about what it looked like with, I know four people who have died. I've been told that already. I don't know who the fifth person is. So every time I saw a person from the Capitol, it was a confirmation that Mm. they had not been killed. Um, So I saw Josh McCarrow. I saw Pat Ferguson. Um, I had word from Phil that he was with Celine San Felice. uh, And I had heard that they were with a couple of other people who had survived. And so it was really cataloging the people who lived and then wondering how I'm going to write about the people who I knew had been killed. And I was working on a story. I drove there with a barely charged phone, so I went and bought a new charger at an Amazon kiosk uh, inside the mall across from our office. Um, I was, like, sweaty and emotional. The person probably thought I was crazy. Um, And I plugged my phone into Starbucks, bought a coffee and a water, and started writing on my phone, and I was kind of crying sometimes, like just really thinking about what had happened, and really the, the disbelief is so strong, right? You, you're and and to couple that with the skepticism you have as a journalist in general, I still was wondering if maybe everybody had it wrong, right? If the story was wrong, if everybody was okay, and unfortunately that was that was not the case. But um, so I wrote the story. I worked with my colleagues who were there. I, you know, I couldn't have done it without Pat and Josh, and I definitely couldn't have done it without the other reporters who were in the room who would eventually tell me their stories so that we could write the follow-up. Um, I, I'd be 
curious to hear about since the event has actually happened itself, you know, how do you, how do you, are you approaching your job differently? Are there things that are happening at the Capitol Gazette to help people who, you know, survived it, um, continue to walk through it? You know, what's, what, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, what's the mood of the newsroom since it's happened? Uh, the mood is definitely somber, but we, you know, we have moments of levity. We really support each other. The BSMG, which owns our paper and also owns the Baltimore Sun, and it's kind of the subsidiary thing. You know, it's Tronk, this whole digital thing. And, and uh, you know, Tronk is the overseer, but BSMG is kind of the direct, you know, uh, boss-type entity. So they've been providing us counseling. You know, my editor, Rick, barely has taken any time off, which he should take time off if he ever listens to this. Um, and... You know, everybody's been very helpful. And it's weird because you, when you have something like this happen, you don't realize it, but you have to constantly fluctuate between being a reporter, being your own person who's trying to take care of themselves, and being a counselor to the people who are having problems. You know, I've had to counsel my friends. They've counseled me, you know, really. And the, and the counseling's not like, sit down and tell me about your problems. It's, hey, do you need a hug or do you need to talk to somebody? Do you need to vent about something? Do you know, are you feeling okay? Is the story too much? You know, do you need my support with the editors to find something else? You know, do you want to take one of my stories? And we have all really kind of leaned on each other so that we're all standing together, uh, you know, at a time that I think it's really difficult to do that on your own. How does how do you think that the, you know, one thing about journalists that I've always respected and, and admired about them is their combination of sort of being sharp-eyed and cynical all at the same time. Um, and I would imagine that that was, is that something that's been discussed in terms of how people are thinking about what they're doing? Um, you know, I, I come back to a moment when I was at John McNamara's funeral. We had five funerals in about a week and a half. Um, when I was at John McNamara's funeral, I had heard that Wendy Winters, who had picked up her trash cans and charged the shooter, was being considered for a national award, a federal award that would be given by, I think, the president. And I remember turning to my boss, and I felt so sick to my stomach that I was thinking this. And I kind of looked at him, and I said, Rick, you know, I have to ask this question, but did Wendy do this? Are we misremembering? Are people misremembering from what happened in there? Are we inflating her heroics <laughs> because, you know, we're all affected by this? And... We would later learn that she, we were right. You know, she did what she did, and we had learned. You know, we had learned it appropriately. She helped save Janelle Cooley's life, and I think the lives of others. But that cynicism, that that the skepticism, really kind of never went away. It's still a part of you about when you're thinking about this, and it can feel sick. You know, like oh my god, I can't believe I'm dishonoring. Like even saying it out loud now, you feel like you're dishonoring their memory. When in reality, I think that they would wanted, you know, any of them would have wanted us to be skeptical about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a, it, it's a really good position to be in. I think something that generally the public doesn't really get much of a, an understanding of because they're not in the position, particularly in a time now where people see the media with such a kind of a distorted picture because of that blend between kind of fact and opinion that's happened. And they don't really get a good grasp on sort of like the position you need to be in to work as a journalist and, you know, depending on the circumstances. I grew up in Chicago where sort of like day-to-day -day journalism was always so cynical um, because it was always in opposition to the government, the local government. Um, so you kind of get that. But if you don't, you're not able to separate that out, then I think you lose a real understanding of what you need to do to function in that role, I would think. Yeah, I, you know, I think that there is a misunderstanding from 
the audience on kind of how some of this stuff works. And I've, and I've been an advocate for being more transparent about how we do things. There's some complications there, obviously, and, and I haven't followed through on everything I've wanted to do. But I think we could do better to explain to people how things work, why we make the decisions we make, how we think. We're adversarial because we have to be. You know, the government is a tool of power. It is a thing that has authority over people. And we are here to help keep that in balance. But we also have to reflect on ourselves and realize that we are also a tool of power. You know, if they call us a fourth estate, that puts us at the same playing field as the other three estates of mm-hmm. government. So the reason fake news and enemy of the people and all that stuff works and is effective for, you know, there's a variety of things. But one of those things is that sometimes the media, there's a hubris. I hope I'm saying that word right. That we're, you know, hot stuff. We know better because we're the truth seekers, right? And in reality, we have to take a step back and go, you know, we've made some mistakes. Spanish-American War. Yeah. We started that. <laughs> you know, the newspapers, for years, some of them still are racist. Mm-hmm. They use racist language. The Chicago Tribune printed lynchings as just a thing that happened. It wasn't an outrage. It was, here's what happened today. Mm-hmm. So you start from that moment as a reporter and as a journalist and as an editor, and then that's when you start trying to empathize with people and have a conversation about the power, the influence that you have over them. Then it's the audience's responsibility to say, you know what? Wow, you know, my worldview has been challenged, and, I, and I'm considering this, and I'm open to these ideas and these changes. And that's when the dialogue starts and happens. Mm-hmm. And so, and I got on a soapbox. I think I just used your question for that. But oh, that's no, that's completely <laughs> fine. I'm, I'm wondering what they're like. Is there anything in particular that you think would increase that level of transparency? I think sometimes people are impatient with how media works, mm-hmm. and you know, don't understand that saying that there's an anonymous source or something like that. It's part of the machinery of how it works. Yeah. Um, I, so, what do you think would would give people a better understanding of how these things operate? So, there are a lot of ways to do it. Um, I've had conversations with professors here um, who have talked about, you know, just writing about how the sausage is made, how we did it, why we made a decision. Sometimes you could even put that in the story. You have a breakout that says these sources are anonymous because this person has threatened to kill them or they are fearful for losing their job. For, you know, I'm always skeptical about sources that are like, you know, they're, they were not authorized to speak publicly, so they're anonymous. I'm like, that's probably President Trump who did that, you know. <laughs> yeah. It could be a variety of things. So we have to be more specific with the reason we're giving people anonymity, and we have to be more open to the criticism that those anonymous sources are not really helping some people understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. They might be telling the story, right? But there's nothing for me as the reader to attach to and go like, wow, you know, the sourcing that they're getting from this is pretty good. And I think that that's something that we really have to work on. And we can do that through blogs. Uh, we can do that through other websites. We can do that through podcasts. We can do that through annotations, writing, annotations, yeah. writing in stories. You know, there's a variety of ways to do it. But we have to be it's not it's not a secret dark art. You know, I don't go into a room and do some incantations and then come up with a news story. I go outside and I talk to people. And I think sometimes people think that there's this magic at work where I'm manipulating things, and that's it's really not the case. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, yeah, it's, I think there's a lot that needs to happen b- because of the way the media has become increasingly complicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, part of what we like to worry about 
you know, in educational institutions is what can we do to increase sort of people's general media literacy so they have more of an angle on what they're looking at. They have more of a kind of curiosity about, well, where did I get this from and why do I believe it? But it's also happening at a time when there's this, like, explosion of other ways that you can get information in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always find it particularly hilarious when sort of the, the fact-checking sources become things people are skeptical of. Like when I hear people say, oh, Snopes has an agenda. It's like, nah, not really. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's, I think their agenda is to try to give you the tools you need to you know, be skeptical and verify what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the story that you wrote? So you wrote a story on the, the Capitol Gazette shooting um, and maybe just walk me through um, you know, how you, as you gathered information, sort of how you wanted to, to, to tell that story as both a, you know, a journalist and someone who's representing the, the, the paper and which was involved in the, the incident itself. So I've, read se- I've written several stories. Is this the day of like five shot dead at the Capitol or is this the... Essentially, the TikTok of what happened in the room. That's the one that, that I'm looking at. It's, it's so it's July 1st, and the the headlines: uh, Capital Gazette survivor, we shouldn't have to die for a level of decency to be upheld. Yeah, so I think that was the that was the TikTok follow up in which I interviewed um, Phil Davis, Celine Sanfeliz, Rachel Pacella. Uh, I used information from Paul's interview with the Baltimore Sun. We do share sources and stuff. It's not like if I take something from their story, I just put the Baltimore Sun, you know, at the bottom. It contributed. I think I did that for that story. Um, That story was very difficult, and I think it's the one pinned to the top of my Twitter because, you know, I spent probably two hours total listening to everybody tell me the same story. And the same story was I heard a loud noise, the glass crashed. And then this guy just started unloading a shotgun as much as he could. And, you know, some of the hardest things were listening to them talk about what the last words were for some people. You know, in that story, we edited down some things that were more graphic than the audience thought. And the way I wrote it, you know, it felt too strong to me, too. But I was kind of like, okay, well, is this strength? Is this feeling I'm having because I'm an employee whose colleagues were killed? Or is this feeling I'm having because I'm a journalist who's trying to be responsible? And I think I left it up to the editors. I said, well, I'll go up to the point where I feel uncomfortable. And if they feel worse, then they can they can change it, you know. So a lot of that was really, you know, I get off the phone with Phil and just start crying because, you know, you learn new things, right? And, and Phil saw a lot more than everybody else. So, you know, you're writing the story and you're just trying to do the best job you can. And there's this, you feel this like, you know ownership right because mm-hmm. it happened and so i'm like okay well one i can't screw this up there can't be a factor in this story and two like i need to make sure other people are reading this so that i'm not injecting myself too much because while i was there and while i worked there i still have a responsibility i have to be a journalist and i have to be not necessarily you know unbiased it's impossible you know we all have biases i said i have to i have to keep my feelings in check and write this story. But the feelings and the empathy of what happened to everybody is also part of the story. So you have to find a way to draw out those emotions through the sources and not through your own like editorializing. Was there ever a point where you felt like this is a story? Did you ever have a moment where you said, yes, I want to be the one who write this to own this? Or was there also points where you're like, you know what, this this feels like too tall of a task for me? So that story in particular that we were just talking about, I volunteered for. The Sun wrote their own version. And I told um, Jay Judge, and I kind of, you know, I waffled a little bit. I'm, I'm not some, like, you know, I thought about it a lot, right? I wasn't just some hero who knew immediately what to do. And I decided that one of the things that I felt strongly about was that I think the Capitol should have a Capitol byline every day. 
It shouldn't just be, you know, if you open that story, if you open the paper on June 29th, that's all Baltimore Sun reporting. The Interesting. Only, the only story that we had was the front page. So I felt strongly that we needed to keep pushing capital bylines in there. And, and BSMG and Baltimore Sun editors felt the same way. And, you know, that's like a, like I've said, you know, in, in all my other speech, speech engagements, that we couldn't have done it without them. I didn't go to the press and print it myself. You know, we had help. We had web editors. We had supporters. All those people are kind of the unsung heroes of this. And we, since then, have never missed anything. And, you know, one of the stories I'm the most proud of is that on June 30th, we had a city council or a county council preview in the paper. We didn't miss that. We printed that, and I wrote that story. And it was important to me because this person came to the newsroom with the express purpose of killing everybody. And he failed. And now he's on trial, and he's a suspected shooter, which I always have to, you know, say to make sure that people understand that I'm not trying to convict this guy. And, but... You know, we will not let that happen. We're defiant. The community is defiant. You know, we couldn't do it without them. So my feelings are we're not going to stop reporting. We're going to write about everything. We're going to write about the trial. We might have to make hard decisions about what we cover and what we don't cover because, you know, we lost 20% of our staff that day. But, you know, we're going to keep going. We're going to press on. Are you, you're doing a lot of the trial coverage, aren't you? I'm, I'm sharing that with Danielle Ohl, who was on vacation when the shooting happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how how does that? How have you kind of come to understand how you can do that, given given the circumstances and your you know, desire to treat it as a professional? Well, there are obvious concerns about the ethical ramifications of me covering this or Danielle. Right, every person in that that building and every person who worked at that paper when it happened is compromised by the like. I'm doing air quotes here, but like the rules of ethics, mm-hmm. but. The way ethics works and what I've learned a lot after being out of OU and what I learned a lot in, in, in David Craig's class here at Gaylord is that ethics is not this on and off zero one switch. It is a it is a gray swamp's not the right word. It's a gray area. It's it's a gray place where you go and you make decisions and you, you recognize your own biases because when you're a reporter or an editor, nobody anoints you and then dips you into the, the, the unbiased pool and baptizes you with no opinions, right? You feel strongly about a lot of things. Recognizing those feelings and then being honest with yourself about, okay, I can't do this. I cannot write about this. Somebody else has to do it. Or you go, okay, I feel strongly about this, but I'm going to attack my own ideas first and try and relearn what I know and then move on to the other things and give everybody a fair shot to talk about how they feel about this issue. If you go into it assuming that you're not biased, you're going to screw up because it's going to slip by you without you knowing it. And I think that's how people should start. And then the shooting has taught me a lot about this. You know, I went to the jail to try and talk to the guy. I sent the guy a letter. I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I, you know, I, I wanted a story, and that's what I went to go do. Mm-hmm. Is he? Is the? Uh, is he? I'm just out of curiosity. Is he on medication, or you know, do you know anything about that? That I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we learned a lot about him afterward. We knew about him beforehand, obviously, because he had a grudge against the paper. Um, but, you know, a couple of days after the shooting, somebody called and said, hey, I have a yearbook that he signed. Do you want to see it? And I said, yes. And also the back of my head was like, what are you doing? Like, are you going to re-victimize yourself? Are you re-traumatizing yourself? You know, there's a nice smiling photo of him in the yearbook, mm-hmm. not the one that you see in the mugshots. Right. And, you know, the, you have emotions about that. But at the same time, I was like, well, the audience wants to know, and we should know is the paper of record covering the story. So we're going to write the story. Mm-hmm. And I worked with the Baltimore Sun. I worked close to my editors. I said, you know, make sure I'm not doing anything 
egregious, make sure I'm not convicting him. I know I'm being careful, but, you know, just in case, multiple people should look at it and we'll go from there. Yeah, it's another thing I don't think people realize in terms of the transparency of it is how many people are involved in the process of getting something from the reporter to the news outlet, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, a story can see four different people could read a story before it goes to print. Mm-hmm. And that's how errors happen. Reporters screw up and somebody misses it. A copy editor is not familiar with something and they rewrite an entire sentence because the reporter did a bad job or they the copy editor is maybe a little aggressive and then it gets messed up. Like that's There's so many different avenues before a story goes to print. It's not me sitting in a room writing it and then hitting publish. I have the power to do that, but I don't because that's not how our organization works. I have the power to do that when things happen that are incredibly intense, you know, like the shooting. You know, we would publish something immediately, then edit it. And I, again, think that it's really worth telling people and trying to be more honest with them and transparent about how we make that stuff. Mm-hmm. So how does that integrate with the – because you're a social media presence too. So mm-hmm. how do you integrate what you're doing that's sort of like the more normal coverage with what you do on Twitter, for example? So on Twitter, I'm really – you know, I like to read Twitter a lot more than I use it. Obviously, I did the tweet during the day when I was at the shooting and I was covering it, and I'm glad that, that people were inspired by it. But a lot of it was really – personal defiance about not stopping us and then also straight news because nobody else had that information we could provide that you know nobody knew what was going to happen to the paper the next day except us so we told the public and you know i sorry i lost my train of thought there a little bit um well, why, what was well, the question? Again? Sorry. sorry. Well, while, while you find that, I want to, so I want to ask you about that specific tweet. So the tweet no. that you're referring to is you said, uh, "I can tell you this: we're putting out a damn paper tomorrow." And you, t- you talked about, you know, earlier that was that was part of your personal mission that you internalized that and you you wanted to make sure. Mm. Um, so just yesterday, the Oklahoman was sold to Gatehouse Media, mm. and the mayor of Oklahoma City had a similar tweet in which he he said, "I, I, I don't want to imagine OKC without the work of," and he listed several uh, uh, Oklahoma reporters and many others too. Uh, two numerous mentioned here. Today represents change, but they're still putting out a damn paper tomorrow. Uh, go, go buy one. <laughs> yeah, that's the mayor of Oklahoma City. And and, wow. and so when I saw that, I thought, well, maybe Chase's quote was not original, you know, and like maybe he was referring to something, but yours, you, you, you really were the first sort of, you know, put put the damn paper out. And when I Google that, you know, it's 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 about you. But that has, that has become sort of a sentiment that seems to have caught on, at least, you know, as it, as it relates to, to news. And so I, I'm interested to see your perspective on local journalism continuing despite, you know, whether it's mass shootings or whether it's, you know, um, uh, consolidation of media companies mm. seems to be a sentiment that, that, that is really ringing true amongst, uh, amongst Americans. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the sentiment that comes out of that that I think a lot of people attach to, and, and a lot of them were journalists, but some of them, you know, were the audience, is everybody really actually likes their local paper. You know, yeah. some people called us the crapital because we did something that, that made them mad. But, you know, you like your community paper because a lot of times they're not talking about the national issues or the federal issues that get people really worked up. You know, sometimes they do. You know, we covered an abortion resolution at the county council. That got a lot of people worked up. I got a lot of emails from everybody who were mad about one thing or another. But you have a connection. You know, you have more empathy and sympathy with your community because you're there. You care about it. You're not writing about, you know, this politician floating from hallway to hallway in D.C. You're writing about the politician coming back and answering questions at, at his town hall. So you have the community in the paper. 
they get to see themselves and, and they get to see themselves reflected. Obviously, newspapers could do a better job reflecting minority communities, and I think that's important to say. Um, but I think we need to have an honest conversation with where newspapers are going because businesses are using them as tools to make money and then sell them and then close them. We have to come to the realization, and this is the end of the world podcast, so maybe I can do some some prophesizing <laughs> here. Uh, Please. Tell me everything. They're investments. <laughs> They're going to be investments. You have to invest in democracy. You cannot do a business with newspapers. People don't read newspapers the same way. They go to stories immediately. They go to the issue. They don't go to the front page. People are not subscribing as often because they're using the website, and the web has you know different financial values, and they're just so much more spread out. We as a community, as the United States, as the world who has, who has journalism and press, and I think every country should, and the people who are doing this stuff in Colombia – and, and Venezuela are way braver than, than I ever could be because just a regular news story could get those people killed. And we have to say we invest in this. The public invests in it by subscribing. The you know federal government invests by maybe tax incentives. I don't know. you know. But then you get into this weird thing where you're kind of coupling with the federal government. You get some BBC kind of action here, right, You know, with the taxes on th- televisions. Mm-hmm. i got to stop saying facts I'm not sure about. <laughs> um, no, license fees. You're right about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So – but, but we, are, we are at the precipice of the business side of it is closing because they can't figure out a way to make enough money and the audience having to realize that it's an investment, that, that for you to know anything about what's happening in your community, you got to fork something over. You're, you're almost suggesting that the media is not the enemy of the people. Is that, is that what you believe? We have been before, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, not intentionally, sometimes intentionally. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about the Spanish-American War. We started a war that killed people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have power, we have authority, we have to recognize that. But the audience shouldn't fear that so much that they get rid of us, because you'll miss us when we're gone. Uh And if we are honest about our mistakes, and we correct the record when we can, and as long as the audience has the responsibility to change, to understand when something challenges their worldview, then we can coexist. There can be harmony there. Uh But until then, we're going to struggle. And I think a lot of times the business side of it's really frustrating because you have to write about certain things, right? Like people complain, oh, all you write about is police beat stuff. I'm like, well, that's all you guys read. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we have the stuff on the website. All the hits come from that. If you read this long expose I wrote about the county executive, maybe we would do more of those. But they don't. They don't attract the same audience. So we have to. you have to find these balances. And I always come back to investment. Stop treating it like a business. Treat it like an investment and the output of that investment's not money, unfortunately. It's democracy, it's change, it's truth. It's a thing you can't grab, you know, and touch in a lot of ways, but sometimes you can, you know. In, in Maryland, we helped change the laws on cow nose ray fishing. Cow nose rays are these uh, animals in the Chesapeake Bay who are maligned for eating oysters. And oysters are like the, the sacred, you know, filter for the bay. That's what helps keep the water clean. Well, they were kind of unfairly maligned, and we wrote the story about these uh, fishing tournaments that aren't regulated because the, f- the state government didn't really care, and they would shoot them with bows and arrows. They would then rip them out of the water, hit them with a bat, and then hope they were pregnant so that when they weighed them, they weighed more so they could win the contest. So they were abusing these animals, and, you know, I am like, you know, I love animals. I have birds at home. You know, I love them, but I, I was like, wow, this is really intense, but it was a group that went and did like a secret camera gotcha thing to see what these tournaments look like and we wrote about it and we didn't like take a position we just said hey here's what they do and the public was like absolutely not and started calling their you know their, their federal or their state officials mm-hmm. and then change happened 
and now those animals are a little bit more protected than they were before. Mm -hmm. It's funny when you were talking about sort of the whole the business idea and the the the, the difficulty that that faces. Uh, David Simon, who some pe people have very feel very different feelings about him in the Baltimore area. He's pretty intense on Twitter. He's, yeah, he's pretty intense. And and there was one time it was actually in an interview I think with Bill Moyers where he said. Uh, the destruction of local journalism is going to lead to a golden age of local corruption like you've never seen before. Absolutely. It was, and, and it was just a very startling thing. Absolutely. I mean, we wrote a story about an employee who bought boat parts with his credit card from the county. You know, he went and bought stuff for himself. Uh -huh. He used taxpayer money. He paid back the county after they discovered it. But, you know, if it wasn't for us being there to go like, hey, you guys know about this? Like, maybe we should... I just want you to know the facts about how these county cards work and this guy abused this so that the next time the budget comes up, maybe you have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Maybe you come to the county council meeting and go like, hey, you should change the way the procurement process works. Mm -hmm. And I know procurement is like the most boring thing. we got to buy stuff and we got to put a bid out. But like that stuff's important. But you got to be aware of some of the things that why it affects you, how it impacts you and those kind of things. Yeah, I think sometimes the challenge of getting some of that, um, some of the really boring legislative you know, the, all the things that – so the past week we've had everything about the Kavanaugh hearings and everything like that. There was a budget passed. I mean, there was other things that were not part of kind of the big agenda because these stories were dominating so much. And a lot of those stories are not necessarily the most scintillating, but they're really important because mm -hmm. they're really going to affect people on both the national and local level. Yeah, I mean, we had a story where a uh, county councilman was one of the swing votes on an issue for a tax um, – I'm going to make sure I get this right – tax rate – cap decrease or not cap decrease but tax rate decrease and in the meeting he said well i talked to a guy at randazzle park and he told me to vote against the tax increase so i'm going to do that and so they voted to lower the taxes a little bit more but in doing so they couldn't hire 30 more teachers and that was the threshold to make sure classes didn't get any bigger so the lead of that story was man in randazzle park convinces county councilmen to vote uh, you know, a certain way and budget misses $8, $8 million. And then the next line is like 30 teachers won't be hired now and, you know, because of this. So people can see the impact, but that's one of the, tr the challenges. That was a gift to me from the councilman when he said that, right? But in general, you have to find a way to get people engaged and get them active, but they have to care too. Like just because nothing's happening to your life doesn't mean that the things are not impacting you in some way, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody doesn't come pick up your trash, you will show up at the county council meeting. Mm -hmm. But the fact that slowly the schools are getting bigger and they've got more students and they've got less money, that over time will end up in a you know four-part series where we write about, hey, guys, nobody showed up to fix the, the school, so they're screwed now. Mm -hmm. you know, And yeah. they're getting better in Anne Arundel County. I wouldn't give you know the government credit for that, but... You know, the public's got to show up. It can't just be us. Have you seen other changes in terms of the kind of people that are getting involved in politics there? Definitely a lot more women. Uh, you know, we've written about it. Uh, we, we have, um, you know, record candidates, you know, record volunteers. You know, the, the Trump administration, I think, has catalyzed a lot of women. And I think, and I say that for both sides. I say that you see a lot of Democratic women coming forward and running, and you see a lot of Republican women coming forward and running, and some of them are Trump supporters, and some of them are like, no thanks. But they are engaged, they're catalyzed, they're showing up meetings. I had, you know, I've sat through two county council meetings in a row that went to midnight plus, and they start at 7 p.m. So people are interested, they're engaged, they care, they're fighting against certain issues, they're very active, and I think people, I think Democrats should be concerned too, you know, in November, because they're people that are mad that things aren't changing. 
you look at Chicago, you look at Baltimore, those are Democratic strongholds who have always had Democrats. And the people who live in those communities are tired of things not changing faster or for the better. And it's, it's you know, it's those, that's their politician's job. Mm-hmm. Well, Chase, I know that you're on a limited schedule, um, and I appreciate you. I mean, you've, you've, you've just one, coming to Norman to tell this story, but to be able to tell it over and over again for, for different student groups and uh, come back and share it for the sake of education, uh, we really appreciate and also appreciate your time today as well. Well, thank you guys so much. And, um, you know, the media is definitely changing and it's going to be different, but it will always be around in some way, whether well, we've got a radio, you know, rogue radio station in the, the apocalyptic wastelands or, <laughs> or we've, got a, uh, we've got a newspaper that somebody wrote, uh, you know, on the back of a napkin and started submitting it. So thank you guys. Thanks for what you do. Sure. And I appreciate being here, Galen. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, every day brings us a day closer to the end of the world. Let's just have to and keep in, that in the back and of your head. until then, keep putting out the damn paper. Yeah. Every damn day. <laughs> Thanks.